I'm delighted to introduce to the Twin Lakes Fellowship uh, Dr. Michael J. Kruger, who is the President and Professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is a recognized uh, and leading scholar on the issue of canon. And uh, many of you may well have seen his books. You may well follow his blog, which is called Canon Fodder. And uh, I'm delighted to introduce him to you today. Mike, thank you so much for taking time to be with us at the Twin Lakes Fellowship. Thanks, Ligon. Great to be with you, and I appreciate the uh, allowing me to record this interview since I can't be with you. I wish I could be there. Absolutely. And let me just tell the, the fellowship, uh, Dr. Kruger would love to be with us. He's actually going to be ministering to a family that has experienced the loss of a child. Uh, even while we're listening to this interview, he'll be preaching that funeral, and we'll, we'll certainly remember to pray for you uh, as you do that, Mike. But thank you so much for being with me today so that we can give this uh, good information to the brothers. I want them to know a little bit about you. Uh, Mike, you are a North Carolinian, and you studied at the University of North Carolina. When did you become a Christian? Yeah, uh, North Carolina is more or less home for me. I wasn't born here, but lived here most of my life. I grew up in an evangelical home with Bible-believing parents who loved Christ and became a Christian at a very young age as a result, and so I was really grateful for that. I didn't grow up in any particular Reformed uh, uh, way of thinking. I grew up solidly convinced of the gospel and believing in the Bible, but wasn't introduced to Reformed theology until actually my time at UNC Chapel Hill where I was introduced to Reformed theology by some older Christians giving me a, the Puritans to read. So it was quite the, the journey when you're 19 years old to read the Puritans. Now, there, there was, you also had a, a professor at the University of North Carolina named Bart Ehrman, didn't you? Yes, I did. Um, uh, one of my interesting experiences there was to take a New Testament introduction class by our, one of our newest professors at the time, a very young and scrappy Bart Ehrman, who had just gotten there, and uh He's uh, pretty much the same guy today, uh, very witty and, 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 uh, and funny and intelligent, but yet very hostile and very antagonistic to biblical Christianity. Did that play into your sense of calling to seminary and to academics and to Ph.D. study at all, Mike? Yeah, it did. actually played a very direct role. What I found out when I got to Carolina was that even though I was a committed Christian, I kind of didn't know much at all. Um, and, and found myself very exposed by what Ehrman was doing. And it not only caused me to be interested in, in not uh, finding myself unprepared, but also sort of created an interest in early Christianity and textual criticism and development of the canon and so on. And so I actually have Bart Ehrman to thank in an ironic sort of way for uh, part of my calling, at least, into the academic world. So my interest in those topics is largely due to my time with him as a professor. Now, you ended up at the University of Edinburgh working with one of the leading uh, early Christian study scholars in the world, Larry Hurtado. Tell, tell me about how you got there and what you worked on uh, at Edinburgh. Yeah, well, when it was time for the Ph.D. work, I was interested in doing work on textual criticism and, and, and early Christian manuscripts and so on. I was looking for someone to study with that uh, was a leading expert in the field but was not overtly hostile uh, to uh, Christians. After all, Ph.D. work is tough enough as it is not to have someone out to get you. And Larry Hurtado is one of the leading uh, scholars in the world in that field. And so when I learned about Larry and began to read his work, I really went to study with him, and he happened to be at Edinburgh, which is also an excellent university. 
and with a great uh, history and pedigree. And so it worked out fantastic. And while I was studying there, I did my work on an apocryphal gospel fragment. And so my work was in everything from apocryphal gospels to ancient manuscripts, paleography, textual criticism, and actually early Christian theology. So. And so that really prepared you to pursue this interest of yours in canon, uh, because all of those things factor in to uh, the study of canon in early Christianity. Uh, is that something that predated your time in Edinburgh, or is that something that really came together while you were doing your work in Edinburgh? Uh, a little bit of both. My interest in canon broadly certainly predated Edinburgh, but as I did my work there, it, it, it was honed more and more on that area. Um, and I began to realize also that there weren't many evangelicals doing work in that narrow field, and particularly no Reformed evangelicals uh, doing work in that field. In fact, as, as the group will hear or will have heard from Chuck Hill, who's a, a good friend and colleague, we're one of the few guys around that are Reformed and working in this area. And so uh, I, I began to have an interest in it. I saw a need, and uh, I realized that if you're going to study apocryphal Gospels, then, then the best way to study apocryphal Gospels is really to study the canonical Gospels and why we have those and not uh, Gospels like the Gospel of Thomas. And so it really was a natural progression. Now, you've recently written a book uh, published by IVP Academic called The Question of Canon, Challenging the Status Quo in the New Testament debate. And it may be good for our folks here at the fellowship to know what the status quo is in the New Testament <laughs> debate, and then for you to, to explain why it is that you're challenging that and how you went about doing that. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, one of the purposes of the book was to communicate exactly that, to sort of let people know what's going on in the academy as it pertains to canon and is that reliable. And I go through five major tenets in the book that make up sort of the, the, the major view today in canonical studies, what I call the intrinsic model of canon. And uh, the nutshell version of it is the extrinsic model of canon, which is the dominant model in the academy, argues that the idea of a canon, the, the process of canon, was all a very late development in early Christianity. It was sort of an afterthought. It was something that came uh, long after the books were written. It was sort of retroactively imposing uh, a status on books that were written for an entirely other purpose. And so it was really artificial and out of sync with biblical Christianity. And so I looked at that extrinsic model and found it to be wanting at a number of levels. And so the whole book is designed to push back against it at numerous points. And the, the, the upshot of my book is that I argue for what you might call an intrinsic model, which is that canon wasn't a late artificial uh, development within early Christianity, but rather something that would have more intrinsically, naturally, organically grown from within the matrix of the Christian faith itself. And so the issue isn't that the date of canon is early, depending on what we mean by that, but the idea and the process and the whole concept of canon was early. And so it was, it was a process, yes, but its roots go way, way back. Now, one of the questions you tackle in that book is, why is there a New Testament at all? You want to you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah. One of the ideas in, in modern academy is that, that the idea of a New Testament was obviously, you know, artificial and late and really motivated by many other things late in the church. And what I argue is that the idea of a new deposit of written scripture is sort of intrinsic to the faith and would have developed quite naturally and in, 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 in organically. And I mentioned numerous things in, in my second chapter of that book that sort of head down that route. I'll just mention a, a couple of them. One is just the whole role of the apostles. Um, if you have people that are commissioned by Christ to speak authoritatively for him and that their words are Christ's words, 
What happens when they begin to write books? Well, this is sort of a natural progress towards canon. As soon as they begin to put their words on paper or papyrus or however you want to say it, they began to have books that had authoritative status from the very start. And so you don't have to wait till some 4th century council to have authoritative books. You have them in the 1st century just by virtue of the apostolic office. So it's, it's arguments like that that I explore more in depth in the book and show that the canon would have developed pretty quickly based on those concepts in early Christianity. A number of months ago, you began to do a series of blog posts that got a lot of attention. I know Justin Taylor uh, from the Gospel Coalition and Crossway Books drew attention to them on the whole issue of canon. And, and what you were trying to do is give pastors and elders and uh, intelligent lay people, seminarians, some basics that they need to know about the canon because there is a lot of misinformation that gets passed along in freshman religion classes and in uh, more left-leaning New Testament introductions about the whole issue of canon, and I wonder if you'd kind of talk with us about, you, you, you actually had ten posts, sort of ten things you need mm-hmm. to know about the canon. Why don't you walk us through some of those things that, that you feel that we need to know, because you've got a room full of pastors and elders and seminarians and church leaders here, and I want, I want them, first of all, to be confident in the Word of God and the deposit of the faith that they have in the canon of Scripture, we want them to be able to intelligently interact with people that challenge the status of canonical scripture. And I think these things that you've talked about and written about will be actually very helpfully encouraging to them if they haven't already benefited from them yet. So just walk us through some of those yeah. things, Mike. Yeah, well, first of all, I would say to the, to the guys there uh, that, sh- that are there this week that they ought to take an opportunity to go to the website and read these hmm. ten things for themselves if they get a chance to do it. Actually, PNR has asked me to assemble these into a booklet. Um, one of those small little sort of pamphlet-style booklets, and of course I'm nowhere near getting to that, but uh, <laughs> it's number 74 on my long list of things. But sometime it'll do that, but in the meantime you can get it online. But let me just make some highlights. There's ten things. I won't go through all ten, but some of these things are very basic and simple that, that, that every Christian should know, and certainly the pastors listening to this ought to know already, but really their congregants may not know. And so, for example, the very first thing I say in the list, some basic fact about canon that they ought to know, is that the New Testament writings are the earliest Christian writings we possess. Now, you just pause and think about that for a moment. It's a pretty significant fact. We have a lot of early Christian writings, but the earliest ones we possess are actually the books in the New Testament, um, with the minor exception of First Clement, which is kind of hanging on the edge there, depending on how you date that in Revelation. You basically have all first century books in the New Testament, and only... The New Testament has first century books. And so what you have is a very interesting thing that the the earliest books we have that represent Christianity are actually the books that are in our Bible. What that tells you is something very simple, which is, hey, wait a second, maybe the early Christians that affirmed these 27 books did it for a pretty good reason. These do represent the earliest stage of the faith that we have access to. And so that's just an example of the the kind of fact that I throw out. I'll give you a second example. Uh, number two on the list is also a basic fact, but one that most congregants may not know, is that all apocryphal New Testament writings are written in the second century or later. And by apocryphal writings, I mean writings that seem like books in the canon but are not in the canon, things like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter or uh, Paul's letter to the Laodiceans or whatever it might be. These types of apocryphal writings were popular in certain parts of early Christianity, but the interesting fact is they were all late. In other words, the earliest date we have for these 
in the scholarly consensus is second century. Now, once you say that, it suddenly rules out the fact that they represent any real apostolic teaching. They certainly weren't written by any apostles, depending, regardless of what, what their names were attached to them. Uh, and they really represent later thinking on these matters. And so just those facts alone already give you a very uh, large distinction between the books that made it in the New Testament and the books that didn't. That, that is hugely important in light of a thesis that uh, has predominated for the last 30 years in popular uh, academic circles, uh, the, the idea that Christianity is actually a conglomeration of movements, and we all have a right to pick and choose uh, what we want to believe and, and baptize it as equally authoritative with any other version of Christian belief, and in Gnostic studies, especially in the last 40 years or so, it's been very popular to claim that um, Gnosticism was a popular form of Christianity that, re that uh, reflects a, a valid form of the religion, which was oppressed by uh, a, a hierarchical uh, conspiracy, you know, led by bad guys like Irenaeus and, and others, you know. <laughs> And, uh, and, and it, you know, now that we've discovered uh, the the the, the Hamadi documents and this kind of stuff, uh, we now know that Christianity is a far more complex thing, far more diverse, and this affirms the diversity that we want to have today. In other words, it's sort of reading our current interest in, quote, unquote, diversity back on second century Christianity and saying, aha, we've, you know, we've now, we've been validated, et cetera. And mm -hmm. what, you, what, what you're just articulating, it, 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 it moves against that. It doesn't, it doesn't affirm that kind of reading of early Christianity. Not at all. In fact, the thing you just described is very much what I cover in my book, The Heresy of Orthodoxy. Uh, in that book, co-authored with Andreas Kostenberger in 2009, we go through that very theme, which is this idea that our modern culture loves diversity, and so when they look back at early Christianity, they, they kind of see it everywhere. You know, no one got along, everyone disagreed, all kinds of different views, and so on. That whole line of thinking goes back to a scholar by the name of Walter Bauer, who published a very famous book in 1934 in Germany called Orthodoxy and Heresy in Earliest Christianity, and that's really the fuel driving Bart Ehrman. And a lot of people don't realize that's really what's behind him. And so we wrote that book to deal with those issues. And these ten blog posts I put out deal with those precise issues, which is when you look at the story of the canon, it's actually not at all like critical scholars suggest, this big morass of confusion and disagreement, but rather actually has a, a lot of logic to it when you realize why the New Testament books were affirmed and why others were not. Now, you just mentioned the apocryphal writings. There, there's, uh, there's been a lot of discussion. Uh, there was several months ago, and then it's popped up again because of the Harvard Theological Review's latest edition. Uh, but there's been a lot of discussion about the so-called, and I want to emphasize so-called in inverted commas, <laughs> the so-called gospel of Jesus' wife, because your former professor, uh, Larry Hurtado, has taken that language to the woodshed uh, yeah. very severely and very, very appropriately, I might add. Uh, it's, it, the, the document that we're talking about is not a gospel in any way, shape, and form, and uh, Professor King has sort of taken advantage of the of that nomenclature that had been picked up in the media uh, to sort of sensationalize the find. But there are many people that are wanting to, uh, first of all, privilege that as a much earlier document and claim that it, you know, is a dramatic discovery in some sort. you want to talk a little bit about the, the, the hoo-ha over the so-called gospel of Jesus' wife? 
Yeah, that's a, a very interesting discussion. In fact, I did an interview just this week with World Magazine about this um, because of all the uh, hype that's going around thanks to the new uh, Harvard Theological Review uh, publications. Uh, so there's several issues in play. Um, you know, first and foremost, there's this issue of the authenticity of the fragment, whether it's even genuine. And then the second question is, if it's genuine, what is the implications of it? So let me just say a few words about each of those. First, in terms of its genuineness, I'm actually convinced this fragment's a forgery. Um, and I don't stand alone in that regard. It's not a, a, a statement I make lightly. Um, but I do have some experience looking at ancient fragments, and particularly ancient fragments of apocryphal gospels. And there's many problems with this particular fragment. Um, the way the, 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 the handwriting, the paleography, the ink on the page, there's numerous challenges that presents, and, and paleographers have noted this, and it looks like the, the, the words were painted on rather than written in a normal uh, way with a stylus in the ancient world. Um, they've just done radiocarbon dating on the papyrus, which turns out to be old, but that doesn't mean anything because most forgers actually use ancient papyrus when they mm. make their forgeries. Mm. Um, I've actually written on my own blog site about the about the opposite side of the fragment, which I think is getting far too little attention. I think you can see a very distinctive uh, scribal difference between the back and the front. The spacing of the lines on the back is much greater. The spacing on the front, which everyone talks about, is much more narrow. On and on I could go, but I think the real problem with the fragment has to do with the Coptic on it. And even though I'm not a Coptic scholar, several Coptic scholars have chimed in here and have argued that the the grammar and the mistakes in the Coptic are just not something that you would find in the ancient world and are really indicative of a modern forgery. So all of those things suggest that it's a fake. Now, let's just assume for a moment it isn't. Let's assume that it's a genuine fragment. The current dating on the fragment is actually somewhere around the 7th or 8th century. Um, so what you have here, even if it's authentic, is not anything that has any credible connection to the historical Jesus. Um, there's no reason to think it goes back to the apostles, of course, with that late date. The authorship certainly isn't apostolic. It sounds like one of the classic sort of legendary developments that surrounded the life of Jesus. I will also add this fact, which many people may not know, and, and even the pastors in the room may not know, that outside of this fragment, there's not a single statement anywhere in all of early Christianity that says Jesus was married. Now, that just needs to be, be heard and absorbed. Not a single statement anywhere that says that Jesus was married. Now, if you think about all the things that are said about Jesus, and there's a myriad of things all over the map, some true, some false, some reasonable, some unreasonable, it's just stunning to say that you don't have a single one historically that says Jesus is married. So if this fragment were authentic, it would be the only document we have that says such a thing. The, uh, the, the list of, of things that you suggested that we need to know about the canon, you mentioned a couple of them. Uh, I wonder if you'll share with us some more of those, of those facts about the canon that you think it's important for every minister and Christian to know as we think about these issues, as we encounter the sort of Bauer thesis and as we encounter these sorts of uh, arguments, in whether it's in a, in a freshman religion course or uh, someplace else. What are some of the other things we need to know? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, one, I'll give you a couple other examples of the list I think are helpful. One is, is uh, I think, particularly helpful in the modern day. And number eight on the list is this, that the New Testament canon was not decided at Nicaea nor any other church council. Um, you wouldn't believe how many times I've read on the Internet or in books or things like the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. This idea in people's heads, and I'm not even sure where it comes from. I'd love to see someone do a study on this someday. This idea that the canon was decided at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Um, of course, you being a patristic scholar, Lig, know very well that's not the case. Right. Uh, Nicaea has nothing to do with the New Testament canon. Um, it was 
uh, a Christological discussion there about how to articulate the divinity of Jesus, not how to decide the divinity of Jesus. Yeah. That would be Dan Brown's idea, but how to articulate <laughs> it. Um, so the canon is not even view there, uh, and so that that is just patently false. But above and beyond that, what the pastors need to know is that the canon also was not decided by any church council. Let me explain what I mean by that. I don't mean by that that church councils never talked about the canon or never mentioned the canon. Of course they did. Uh, Hippo, Carthage, Laodicea all make declarations about the canon. But here's the trick. These are regional councils that are not picking books. It's not as if all these men got in some smoke-filled room somewhere and voted this sort of popular notion. But rather, they affirmed the books that they believed had already been functioning as the foundational documents of the Christian faith. In other words, they weren't declaring the way things ought to be. They were declaring the way things already had been, and that's a big difference. Um, and so it's not that we have a canon because of councils. Rather, uh, we have councils making declarations because of a canon that already existed. That little uh, discussion is monumentally important for many reasons. One is it, it puts to death the myth that we have a canon because men voted somewhere, and therefore a completely human document. But it also puts to rest the myth, which is largely uh, an, a thing that's advocated by Roman Catholics, that you can't have a canon until you have some vote by a church council, which is also mistaken. And so that, I think, is a very critical fact in the series that I think pastors need to be familiar with. I think that's hugely important. I think it's also important. I think sometimes Protestants look back, and I, I can remember in my New Testament course, uh, Professor George Knight, as we got ready to, to head into the issue of the canon in that section of the New Testament introduction course, saying, uh, now, brothers, hold your hearts in your hands, because we're now leaving scripture and we're moving into church history where I tell you about the unfolding of the recognition of the canon and it can be somewhat unsettling to Protestants to hear that history recounted mm -hmm. for the first time and I think one reason is a lot of Protestants get the idea that there was a bewildering and random and um, sort of mangled process of recognition uh, by the early church, when in fact the lines were very clear. The, the, the literature that was uh, competing uh, with canonical books for the hearts of Christians in the second and third centuries was literature produced out of Marcionite and Gnostic camps, all of which, though, it, though they themselves have a bewildering variety of, of doctrinal uh, assertions, uh, all of them shared one fundamental error, and that is they all declared matter evil. Mm -hmm. And so the, the church fathers and the church councils, all they had to do was open up their Bibles to Genesis 1-1 and read, In the beginning... God made the heavens and the earth, and at the end of that chapter, see, and it was all very good. And then they could look at any writing that declared that the true God had not created the heavens and the earth and that they were bad and know that they were in direct contradiction with Scripture, which they had all acknowledged from the time of Jesus was authoritative. And so, you know, it's not this bewildering process of recognition. Uh, they can ask simple questions about what accords with scripture and if a book doesn't accord with scripture it's not scripture and yeah. uh you know so I, I think it's important for protestants to recognize this isn't some sort of arbitrary process of recognition that the church fathers were engaged in there were very clear theological lines drawn 
for them in that particular controversy. Even though you have all of these varieties of Gnosticism out there, it all shares one fundamental theological error and flaw, and that really helps us in the whole canon discussion. That's right, and it's amazing to me how often when when discussion of canon happens, how often the, the Old Testament is just left out of the equation as if it didn't yeah. exist. Yeah. Um, even when you read Bart Ehrman or other modern scholars, they talk about oral tradition, they talk about the, 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 the transmission of Jesus' tradition and so forth, and they make it sound like that in the early church no one really had written documents and there was no sort of scripture to stand on in making these discussions about canon. But what you've just pointed out, which is obvious historically, is that they already had a canon. That's right. They had an Old Testament canon. Uh, that was already established and that could be a, a theological foundation on which to stand when making declarations and discussions about new, new books and, and uh, what should belong in the new canon. I think it's, it's, it's uh, important for the men to know, too, that not only are we blessed with scholars like you and, and Chuck Hill who know the story of the New Testament canon, but perhaps uh, one of the leading scholars of the Old Testament canon of the New Testament church is Roger Beckwith, who's also a, a low church Anglican, reformed evangelical, uh, whose, whose book, when it was published back in the 80s, became the standard book on the Old Testament canon of the New Testament church. And so it's, it's great to have evangelicals leading in the field in mm-hmm. this particular area, and especially Protestants. Um, uh, you know, so often it's Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic scholars that are focusing on that early Christian history uh, and on the development of, of doctrine and themes and, and canon. And it's great to have Protestants uh, who understand Protestantism uh, yeah. actually doing the theology of the canon. Well, one of the interesting developments uh, in my work on canon is actually my interaction with Roman Catholics. Um, when I first published Canon Revisited, a couple of years ago, my main conversation partner when I wrote that book was really modern scholars, sort of higher critical scholars. That's sort of the, 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 the sort of hypothetical audience I had in mind. Um, certainly I addressed Roman Catholicism in the book, but Roman Catholicism wasn't really the main objective of the book. It was really dealing with, with higher critical views like that of Bart Ehrman. Here's what's interesting is that when the book came out, I, I had this flurry of opposition not from higher critical scholars, but from Roman Catholics. Hmm. Uh, and they were very upset about the book. And, and I had, you know, in the blogosphere, they're quite active, so I had all kinds of guys writing onto my website and kind of hounding me about things. But it turns out I didn't realize the degree to which the Roman Catholic people, when they discuss canon, actually share many of the same assumptions of Bart Ehrman. Hmm. What I mean by that is Ehrman wants to portray a scene in early Christianity of disarray. No one knows what books are in. No one knows what books are out. No one can agree on anything. Well, ironically, actually, Roman Catholics are making the same argument. Things were in disarray. No one can know which books are in, and no one can know which books are out, except for their conclusion is, therefore, you need an infallible church to tell you the answer to those questions. Whereas Ehrman just simply says, you can never know the answer to those questions. So you have two people with the same method reaching completely opposite conclusions. And I realize that, that my arguments against Ehrman were actually in one sense, upsetting many of the Roman Catholics because it made it sound different than their reconstructions as well. Very much so. And I, I, would, I would emphasize to the guys here, that's definitely the case with sort of popular Roman Catholic apologists. But when, mm-hmm. when, when, I, when I bump into my liberal Roman Catholic friends in the academy, they that's would a totally act, different story it's a there. totally yeah. different story. They would actually look at your material, and their response would be, yeah, what he is saying is actually right 
and the line that is given by the magisterium on this is not in accord with what we really learn from the study of early Christianity because there's a sense in which they don't have a dog in the hunt. They're, they're liberal in their own construct. They don't really care about doctrine. They're all about sacramental unity. And so they're, they're, they're totally open to a reconstruction of the way that their own church has told that history. Uh, but the popular apologists uh, tend to be traditionalists, and they want to hold that line. And so I can, I can imagine your email box was flooded uh, by, by, by that crowd. Well, Mike, we were talking earlier before we came online about uh, Bart Ehrman's new book, uh, How Jesus Became God. And uh, we're going to be talking next with uh, Chuck Hill, who's been a part of a project responding to that book. But, you know, that, that book, too, you know, it, it, it's, part, it's part of a theme with this, this, this argument that Bart has been making for a long time. And, and his argument here is that uh, Jesus didn't claim to be God. The earliest Christians didn't think he was God. This was something that developed over time. It's really not original. You talk us through his argument in the book and, and, and give us a few things that we need to know in terms of rejoining that. Yes, uh, this book just came out in time for Easter, or always <laughs> tends to do that. Uh, it's amazing timing. Um, I know that Chuck will do a great job summarizing it in your next block of, of discussions, and, and he's, he's contributed to a response to it. I'm working on a, a review myself right now and have done several interviews about the book. The essence of the book in terms of the, the thesis is actually rather simple, which is that Ehrman argues that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, he wasn't divine at all, no one thought he was divine, and he didn't think he was divine. It wasn't until Christians had visions of Jesus resurrected, which of course he thinks were just hallucinations, not real uh, encounters with the living Jesus, but visions of a resurrection that led them to reconsider. And so Jesus then gradually gained divine status amongst his followers, and then ultimately was considered the God of the universe in the 4th century. And so what Ehrman basically advocates is what you might call an evolutionary view of, of Christology, where it starts off with a very low or very absent Christology and then sort of slowly builds up over time. Now, you know, if you start taking that paradigm and trying to cram evidence into it, you can create a rather surface uh, case that looks pretty compelling. The problem is when you start breaking it down into the details, it falls apart rather quickly. Um, one of the major thorns in Ehrman's side for this whole thesis is it's not really the gospel so much, but really Paul. Um, well, the problem is that you have uh, many writings that predate the gospels by a good chunk in Paul's letters, and in other New Testament letters for that matter, um, that are dated well into the 50s, if not into the 40s, that even then draw upon early pre-Pauline tradition in the early church uh, that tell us that Jesus was regarded as fully divine long before the gospels were even written, way back into the certainly into the 40s, if not even into the 30s. So what you have is... Things like Philippians 2, which is an early Christian hymn that clearly puts Jesus in the slot of God that dates back even earlier than Paul. So now you have to believe that Christians reached uh, a very, very high Christology in a period of about 10 or 20 years, two decades, when Jesus supposedly never claimed to be God and never really rose from the dead and never really had anyone thinking he was God in his lifetime. So that's just historically untenable um, to, to, to hold that view. And so... Uh, Ehrman's book tries to press the case, but I think at the end of the day, is unsuccessful. Tell us again the name of your book uh, on heresy. Uh, that's called The Heresy of Orthodoxy. Um, that particular book 
uh, came out in 2009 and is co-authored with Andreas Kostenberger. And uh, actually, it came out in 2010, sorry. And uh, we wrote that book with Crossway. The, the subtitle is How Contemporary Culture's Fascination with Diversity Has Reshaped Our Understanding of Early Christianity. Really important book. And then following up uh, with your book on canon uh, from IVP Academic, that volume is called? That's called The Question of Canon. That was published last year, 2013. And that's challenging the status quo in the New Testament debate. Between those, the one in 2012 is really the, the book that most of your guys will probably be interested in there. Uh, because what I do is, is create in the book Canon Revisited, which came out in 2012, really a, a theological model for canon, which for pastors and, and, and theologians is a, is a key part of their repertoire. And who published Canon Revisited? That was Crossway. Crossway. Mm-hmm. So uh, the heresy of orthodoxy, canon revisited, and the question of canon. What are you working on right now, Mike? Well, uh, I am busy with a number of different projects. Um, I just got finished writing a couple uh, academic articles for some some volumes that no one can afford that are going to cost over $100. (laughs) But uh, uh, one on the canonical history of the book of Revelation, and then one on one of Origin's early New Testament lists. But the main book I'll be starting this summer is actually a new volume on Christianity in the second century. And this is going to be, I think, a very interesting project. Um, I'm writing it for InterVarsity in the United States and SPCK in the U.K., so it'll be joint published. And basically, it's going to be a textbook for college and seminary students, and it will focus only on the second century. So I'll be dealing with all the issues we just discussed, not only canon, but text, but and then particularly theology in the second century and development of the Christian faith in a very... Uh, key and strategic time, and so that, that's the new project I'll be kicking off this summer. Well, I'm so thankful for your work and for what you're doing for Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm thankful to the Lord. You know, when you, when you look around, there are not many evangelical patristic scholars. There, there are even fewer Reformed patristic scholars, and RTS uh, has been favored with a surfeit of riches in that area, uh, with you and with Chuck Hill and with our colleague Doug Kelly, we have uh, three world-class patristic scholars uh, in our midst, and I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing for the church, for what it'll do for the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition and for the larger evangelical world, and um, just keep on keeping on, brother. Thanks, Ligon, and I uh, wish I could be there in person, and maybe in a future year I can make it up to Twin Lakes. That'd be great. We hope so. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Bye-bye.